All right. All right. Okay, this is great. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Elijah of the Talmud, a rabbinic reconstruction with Rabbi David Silverman, the Dean of Drisha. Today's class is the last one in this in this four part series. We, if you are joining us on Facebook Live and Zoom, welcome today. Sources will be shared on screen from Sepharia and linked to in chat. We will be learning today from Baba Metzia and Brachov. If you're joining us on either platform, please do feel encouraged to answer questions in, to ask questions in chats. They will be monitored on both platforms. And if you are joining us on Zoom, I've been sending around promotions to panelists. I strongly recommend that you take it. All I ask is if you are joining us on Zoom and you are a panelist, please mute yourself if you are not actively a question, having, asking a question. Otherwise, we get very strange audio artifacts. To, and if you've been joining, whether you're just dropping in for the first class or you're joining us today, it's great to see you. A recording of this class will be posted shortly, shortly following the end. And with that, and we will be starting today in Baba Metzia, uh, 144, Ahmed Aleph. 14. 14, 114. And with that, good, good day, good afternoon. Everybody sober? Okay, thank you. All right, so we're going to begin with the um, with the Gemara story, actually, by Elio Hanavi, in the ninth chapter of Baba Metzia's page 114a. Just to refresh our memories where we stand, uh, one of the main points I was emphasizing is that Eliyahu of the Talmud um, is essentially a, um, a teacher of Torah. He interacts with many people, uh, amongst them scholars and especially poor scholars. But the Torah that he espouses, the Torah that he teaches, this was one of the main points, is a Torah we call the Torah of, of, of Hasidim. Um, which is different than the standard Torah that's being taught through, let's say, the Mishnah, which is the main rabbinic text. Uh, the Mishnah followed by the Talmud, that's one approach, and Eliyahu has a different approach, and it's an approach which is, from one standpoint, very radical, and he has particular things that he's very, uh, very concerned about, which may deviate from the Mishnah, for example. Uh, one of the points is that in the story that we saw last uh, week, um, the Mishnah talks about somebody who is informing on Jews and causing their, their, their person or property to be handed over to the government. They could be killed. And the Mishnah says it depends. If they're chasing after somebody and they single that person out, then it's permitted and they're threatening a whole town, then it's permitted to hand that person over. So the Gemara has the story of Yabi Yoshua ben Levi, who's probably in the Talmud, the main uh, Amora who connects to Eliyahu, that there was such an incident. Someone ran to, uh, who came to Yeshua ben Levi. Uh, the government threatened the town. And Yeshua ben Levi, following the dictates of the Mishnah, handed him over to the authorities. And Eliyahu had been uh, studying with Yeshua ben Levi, teaching him or studying with him. And he stopped coming for a while. So Yeshua ben Levi prays, and he fasts. And we all returns and he says, you think I want to study with somebody who hands over, over Jews? He says, but I followed the Mishnah. He says, is that a Mishnah Hasidim? 
Is that a mission of the Hasidim? So I took that to mean, this is maybe the central point, that the Hasidim for the Talmud has a very particular meaning. There's a group of these people they call Hasidim. Uh, the most famous is probably Hanina Bendosa, but there are many others. And they have a different approach to the world. They are, one might say, rather otherworldly. They tend to have a very strong ascetic element. M material goods are irrelevant to them. They couldn't care less about that. Um, their behavior is often misunderstood or is very enigmatic. So Elio Hanavi, actually, I would describe as the head of the Hasidim. And that's his approach. And there's certain things that he's very strict about. We saw last week, for example, a different text where he talks to be standing in the marketplace and he, uh, another uh, Amora says to him, is there anybody in this marketplace who you think has a, sh a share in the world to come? He looks around, no, not, uh, not in particular, until he meets two different people. First, he meets one fellow who's a, a jailer. And he, he's a jailer, it doesn't even look Jew, it doesn't dress like a Jew. That's one person, and, and so with this, Amor is very interested in finding out what's so special about this guy. He dresses like a non-Jew. He's not wearing, his, he's not wearing his, his, his coat, which has the fringes. So this is the guy who has a share in the world to come, and yes, I'm a jailer. He essentially protects the women in jail. And he separates the men from the women and he makes sure the men don't try to molest the women. Now the women we're talking about, by the way, I presume since he's a jailer are not virtuous saints over here, but he protects them. And this idea of, I would say, separation of men and women, a kind of uh, chastity, that's something the AWO was very concerned about. And it, not only in that story, in other stories as well, they have a particular thing that, that actually interests them. Um, so there too, one might make the argument that once again, and one of the main arguments was that in the biblical text, it's clear that Eliyahu was modeled to some extent upon Moshe. And that Moshe himself uh, is a kind of otherworldly figure in the sense he, he doesn't speak the people's language. According to the... Uh, how Munich understanding of Moshe, he separates from his wife. He separates from his wife because God said to him, you, you stay here with me. And that makes it impossible to live a normal life, husband, wife. So he separates from his wife. Um, so these are essentially these elements of Moshe. The Gemara uh, sees Elio in that light, although he's also quite different from Moshe. But there are all kinds of other parallels between Moshe and Eliyahu. So that was the point. Eliyahu is a teacher of Torah, but the Torah that he's teaching, I claim, according to the Bavli, is not precisely Moshe's Torah. It's a different Torah called the Mishnah and Hasidim. It is possible, by the way, you know, that the, the Kabbalists saw Eliyahu as a very central figure. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with, with Daniel Matt who worked for years on the, on the Zohar, 20 years or something like that. He's also done some teaching at Risha, and he also gave a little course on, on, on Eliyahu. And he's an expert on the, on the Kabbalah. And within the world of Kabbalah, there's something called Gilui Eliyahu. Eliyahu reveals himself to certain people. And that's a very important um, principle in, within this 
within some of the Kabbalistic systems. I think it's pretty pervasive, actually. And I was thinking that the idea of Gilu Eliyahu, that, that there are truths that are revealed today through Eliyahu Hanavi, is very interesting because Mo Moshe's Torah is given at one point in time. And after that, the Gemara says, we don't learn anything, anything new. We can learn, we can interpret, but there's no more revelation of Torah. We say it's not in heaven. Moses Torah concludes with the five books of Moses. And after that, the Talmud claims in several places, there's no more revelation. It's all up to interpretation. But this idea of Gilu Eliyahu, depending how one understands it, but if Gilu Eliyahu is taken at face value, that Eliyahu continues to teach, to, to Gilu, to reveal truths, then what we have over here is very interesting. It's that maybe Moshe's Torah has stopped being revealed and it's up to human interpretation. But maybe the stand-in for Moshe, the stand-in for Moshe, which is Eliyahu, maybe his Torah, that continues. Now the Gemara identifies Eliyahu with what we would call Torah Shabbat Peh. But the Kabbalists who speak of Gilu Eliyahu, some kind of revelation, I think at least we take it at face value, go well beyond that. That in a sense, Moshe continues to speak, not, not himself, but through the surrogate who is not Moshe, but also to some extent is Moshe. Anyway, that's the, that, that is a lot of what we had discussed till this point. And now I didn't want to, in the last of these sessions, just to continue along to try to understand, we're not going to cover all the AWO elements because it's, there are so many in the Talmud. But I did want to look in particular at two, two Talmudic texts uh, this afternoon, and before I get there, well, wait, let's, let's just start the text. Let's start in Bava Metziah, Dav Kufiyu Dawad one fourteen a. It starts. We'll start it. It's a whole long sugyan. We'll start in this text. It's five lines from the bottom. Ashkeche Rabba Baravua Leliyo Bekai Beveita Kvarot. So um, that's right there. So it says that uh, I'll read the English. Rabba Baravua found Elio standing in a uh, graveyard. It's a, a graveyard of, of, of non-Jews. And so he asked him a question. You see, it, you're, a, you're a Rabbi Baravua. You're a big, very important uh, scholar. And there's Elio Hanabi. What else would you do but ask him a, a, a kind of halakhic question? So he had a question for Elio Hanabi. But be, before he asked the question, it's sort of a, he said to Eliyahu Hanavi, Mao she yisadru b'balchov. Now what, is, what does that mean, Mao she yisadru b'balchov? So yisadru b'balchov is this. There's a long, long sugi, and a very complicated sugi in this chapter. We, we actually learned it in Trisha in one of our kolels. It's a very interesting chapter. Um, when, let's say, you owe, let's say I, I owe money. And they come to collect me, and that, my time is up, 30 days are up, and I owe a lot of money. So now I don't have that much cash. So now the question is, Maoshi is Sadru. Do they say to me, listen, you owe the guy $10,000 and you only have $1,000 in cash, but you have all kinds of other stuff in your house. You have all kinds of stuff in the house. So, and you owe the fellow money. You, it's clear, there's no, there's no disagreement about that. So we're simply gonna take your property. That's it. That's, and we're going to take all your property until you pay the $10,000. That's if a misadrin. If misadrin 
it means that we, we, we have a, a Seder. It means that you can't take everything. There's certain things you can't take. The different sources list of things. You can't take the guy's bed. You can't take the guy's last remnant of food. You can't take his coat. So that's if misadrin. So the question is, but the other guy says, he owes me the money. I'm not responsible for his, it's his problem, you know? So that's the question. Misadrin, so, so he was curious about this. So long so you. So we ask Elio Hanavi, Masadrin or a Masadrin? So Amalais, Elio said, from a micha micha meyarachi, Gabi Arachi Ketiv, the Machu Berkecha, Gabi Balchov Ketiv, the Chiamucha Chicha. So what's his answer? So the answer is interesting. He says, he, he doesn't tell him straight up whether we are Masadrin or not, but he says we derive it from a puzzle. Now there's a long sugi here. And here's the point. I can't get into the details of the sugya, but there's some is halach in the Torah called arachim. Towards the very end of the book of Ayikra. arachim means that someone says, "I want to donate money to the temple. I want to donate my own worth to the temple." So if somebody says that, then the Torah says, "How much worth will you assign to each person, depending on age and depending on gender?" Generally speaking, the men have a higher value than the women. Not going to get into that question, but that happens to be the case in the Torah. Maybe it's based on utility of some sort as defined, whatever. One could argue maybe the women have more value than the men, so they produce the children, but when, in any event, um, so that's called Arachim. So when it comes to Arachim, the Gemara has a drasha that when it comes to Arachim, if the fellow has down to a bed and a coat and this and certain things, there we say Misadri. There, the Hegdish will not collect the basic needs of the person. So we Hanavi said, we have a Zeyra Shava. The same way we hold that when it comes to someone who, who, uh, who took a vow to give his or her worth, that we are Masada, we don't take everything. So the same thing is true um, when it comes to a poor person who borrowed money, we don't take everything. In short, Elio said, seems to be saying that the halacha is that we protect this poor person. Yes, he owes the money, but he's impoverished. We're not going to take away his last morsel of bread. We're not going to take away his bed or his coat. That's what Elio seems to say. There is a huge dispute, by the way, between the, the Rishonim about what the halacha is. Most of the Rishonim assume that we are masader for a balchov, for, for, for a debtor. The one Rishon who, who says no, and he rereads the whole Sudya, it's very interesting, is actually Rabbeinu Tam. But leave that out. Rabbeinu Tam said, he said that we are Masadim. He says, we learn from Arachim. You don't take everything away. Says Rabbeinu Tam, Elio didn't actually say that. He rereads the Gemara. His question, he reads it as, what is the source of those people who think that Masadim? So he gives the source but he's not actually dictating what the rule is. So that's the question. But what's interesting is <coughs> Elio is simply a language of Elio is language, language you will find in the entire Shas. Doesn't say God told me X or Y. He says there's a drasha. That's the first question. You see Elio Hanavi, so fine. You ask him a question, you know? He engages with the, with the he's, a, he's a learner. He engages. That was question number one. Then you get to the second, I'm in bed, turn the page or whatever, proverbial page, virtual page. 
114b. And then he asked him another question. How do we know that a person who is unclothed should not take truma? So we all said to him, he answered, It says that God should not see in you a, a, something literally a, a bad thing, but he, he's translating as a naked thing. So the point is, you can't take truma, Rashi explains, when you're not dressed, because you, when you take truma, you make a bracha. And you can't make a bracha if you're not clothed. Why specifically truma? It's true of every bracha. That's true, says Rashi. But they chose the first mission in Truma, Mishnah Aleph talks about whatever, talks about one who's not clothed. Right. So those are two questions he asked Eliyahu Hanavi. Then this rabbi says to Eliyahu Hanavi, Amalei, Rav Kohen Umar, are you not a Kohen? Aren't you a Kohen, Eliyahu? If you're a Kohen, my time of Koimar Bevetakvarot. Why are you standing in the cemetery with all the dead bodies around? Not just dead bodies, but also graves. Graves are also a matami, typically. So therefore, what? Uh, why? How could you be in the cemetery? So Elio says to him, "Amale, lomatni mar tarot. Haven't you learned in the Mishnayot of 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 of, of tarot, of laws of ritual purity and and, and and impurity? You haven't learned them. It's explicit. Rabbi Shiv the Tanya. It says in the Mishnah, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai Omer." That the graves of non-Jews is not metame. Shenemar vatein so niv so mariti adam atem atem kriyim adam being of dekuchavim kriyim adam. It's an interesting drasha. I'm not going to get into the details of the drasha, but Eliyahu says to him, "You haven't learned Torah." It's explicit. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai said, "There's a verse in 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 Yecheskel. You are called Adam." You are called Adam, but not the heathens. And therefore, your, your graves are, are, are cause ritual impurity, but not the graves of the old day Kochabrim. That doesn't matter what the, we can discuss that some other day separately. By the way, when, it, when he says it's not metame, he doesn't mean if you touch it, it is metame. He means if you, if you stand over it, if you're in the same place, it's called an OL. And what's interesting is, Tosus points out that we don't actually, Tosus claims we don't follow that decision. This, that's where Shibin Yochai's view. Uh, but the other Tana disagrees. Doesn't matter. Fine. Fine. So, so this, is, this is the first half of the story. Fine. So there were three questions over here, as it were. One was a kind of shock. He shocked. What are you doing in the cemetery? He says, I don't understand. Don't, don't you learn Tarot? Well, haven't you learned? What's with Rabbi Baravua? Come on. The first two questions were about massaging the and can someone make a, let's say, make a blessing or take truma when one is not clothed? But let's just finish up this little story. So, on my way, so Rabbi said to him, You asked me why I didn't know this mission in Tarot? What does that mean? It means in four, it means in the Mishnah, there is six Siddharim in the Mishnah. Six the six parts to the Mishnah. He says, listen, I have enough trouble learning the four parts, which are relevant. But the six parts, the other two, Rashi claims the other two that were not relevant in those times were the laws of the agricultural laws, right? And the laws of Tumantara have no real effect because everybody's tummy. 
So I, even the other four, Nazikim, Nashim, Moed, whatever, even that I, I have trouble, right? Kotshim, even that I, I have trouble with. I have, so he so Elio says to him, Hamalei Vamai, why are you learning? What do you mean? You can't, you can't learn. What do you, what do you mean? Amalei, so he, so Rabbi says to him, says to him, Tachikyoli Milta. Because I'm having a tough time. I'm tough time making a living. I, I, I can't afford it. I don't have any time. Busy working. And work is very hard. I'm, 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 I'm poor. And we all leads him up to Gan Eden. On my way, Peshot Glimcha, Safi, Shokro Mehali Tarfi. Sapa. So he said, he, um, he said, Elio said, take off your coat, remove your coat, and take some of the leaves of Gan Eden. So Rabba Bar, so Rabba gathers up the leaves, gathers up the leaves. He has these leaves, which he puts on his coat. Fine. Fine. The now he's walking out of Gan Eden with Elio Hanavi. Shama Dik Omar. Manko Ochi Lialme Karaba Baravua says, Here's the, the angels or the other people in heaven saying, or Ganadin saying, Who was throwing away his snake in the world to come like Rabba Baravua? In other words, the point being that if you get benefit in this world, you're, gonna, you're getting paid or rewarded in this world, then you are forfeiting some reward in the world to come, or Ganadin. When Rabba hears this, Nofat Shadanu. So he shakes off the leaves. The leaves are on his coat. He shakes them off. However, uh, however, uh, nonetheless, even though he shakes it out, but the scent of the leaves permeated his coat. So he sold the colt for 12,000 dinarim and he distributed them among his sons-in-law, his families. That's the story. The story is, of course, fascinating story. And one has to wonder, what is the connection between the second half of the story and the first half of the story? So first of all, we see Elio here as one of the scholars. He doesn't say God said X or God said Y. He says, this is Drash, it's Zereshava. Micha Micha from Arachim, right? Um, and um, he quotes a source. How do you know that one can't take shroom and one is naked? He has a source. He has a drasha. The drasha is not about truma. The drasha is in general about not, not behaving or appearing to be in an un, unseemly state. And then the third question is, what are you doing here in the cemetery? Are you a Kohen? Which he doesn't deny being a Kohen. Now, I'll get to this Kohen business in a minute. But who, who is Eliyahu? Let's, let me just state that it's a mystery. He is a person, we, we suddenly discover Eliyahu in chapter 17 of the book of Kings, Malachim Aleph. Eliyahu Atishbi, he's a resident of Gilad. The, the Torah says nothing about him, not his background, not his family, nothing. Not that God speaks to him and he makes pronouncements right away. So the first thing that's interesting over here, I think, is the following. It does seem to be a, something that links all the stories. Did anybody notice what it is that links all these stories? All three stories are linked. Actually, all four, I think, are linked. Well, certainly three of them are linked, that's for sure. 
I'm not sure about the fourth one. I'm sure it's linked, but I don't know what it is. I'll tell you what it is, okay? Since we have, they're all about clothing. But the first one, misogyny can you take away the guy's stuff, including his coat? By the way, when you go to a traditional wedding and they read the ketuv out loud, right? So it says what the chatan is, is uh, obligates uh, himself to the, to the kawa. He says he's obligating himself to pay the basic ketuvah. Then he obligates to give some additional stuff, which can be collected, he says, when I'm alive after my, after my death, minai, even the coat off my back, right? Remember that? Even the coat off my back. So that sounds like in misogyny, right? Take his coat off his back. So the Rishon discussed this actually. And what they say is that's no proof because maybe the guy's wearing, you know, some kind of very fancy coat. So we'll take that coat away and we'll give him a different coat. He's wearing a $2,000 coat, Armani coat or something, I don't know. We'll take the coat away, we'll give him a $100 coat. But, but no, but he has to have a coat. But anyway, that's, so that's the first case, Misadrim. The second case, can you take truma when you're wearing nothing? You're not clothed at all, right? And in the story that's told, those are the two cases Eliyahu says. And in the story, because those are the two halachas he asked him. Then when he takes them up to Gan Eden, he takes off his coat, does Rabbi Bawavua, and he is gathering these leaves of Gan Eden. And then when he hears the angels or whoever says, wise guy throwing away his share in the world to come, he shakes off the leaves, but the scent remains and the coat is worth 12,000 dinars. I was thinking, I mean, first, the first step is to see the interconnections. It's very interesting. The Agadot, there's always something there. But I was thinking that maybe there's a connection to Elio Hanavi, because what marks Elio Hanavi in the, in the biblical text is in fact Elio's coat, which is called an Aderet Eliyahu. And remember that when Elio Hanavi stands at Har Sinai, God tells him to stand on top of, he, he, first in the cave, then he goes to the mountain, he goes to Har Sinai. And there's a great wind, great, which passes by. But God is not in the wind. And there's a great earthquake, a great noise. God is not in the earthquake, right? And a fire, God is not in the fire. And then um, there's the small, still silence called the Mama Daka. And when Elio hears the silence, what does he do? He covers himself with his, with his, with his coat. He covers his face with his coat. So this is the, the coat of Elio. And then when Elio ascends to heaven with his pupil, with his disciple Elisha, the chariot goes up to heaven, but the coat falls down. And Elisha picks up his coat and he splits, he splits the Jordan, travels back and he splits the Jordan. So this is actually one of the marks of Elio is his coat. The coat is sort of magical powers. The coat as it were is the way he receives God's word or hears God's word. But the coat is also um, that which is he leaves behind when he goes up to heaven. Sounds like the coat is the piece of Eliyahu, which is remaining in this world. I mean, Eliyahu is bridging these two worlds, the, the other world and this world, right? As he goes back and forth all the time, as he does in the story. So I'm just wondering if what it's about is,
What I'm wondering if, if, if what it's about is at some Rabba Bawa Bua, the, 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 the scholar, Eliel's friend, is also the Gemara is trying to figure out what's the connection for Rabba Bawa Bua between this world and that world. There's a connection because the as the angels say, why would he forfeit the world to come for this world? So he takes the coat off, but he shakes off the leaves, but but part of that remains with him. It's a kind of Eliel idea that somehow you're in a different place, but there's a but these but there's a connection between the two worlds. We think of them as this totally distinct. But for someone like Elio hops between worlds, they're not distinct at all. He's moving back and forth constantly from one place to the next. In any event, the story over here is interesting from our perspective of last week, that the first thing he asks him, which is Baal means a poor person who borrows money. In, in, the, in, the, in the Torah, only poor people borrow money. Not like today, where you have to have, be rich to borrow money. In the Torah, it's, it, it's a way, it's charity, basically. Lending money to someone is a kind of tzedakah. And this is a person who really has, doesn't have any money because he has no money to pay back. So Elio steps in, and the plain reading is, no, no, you, 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 don't, you don't. So it's the same. You see the concern of Elio throughout with poor people and with poor scholars, which is the end of the story. How come you didn't learn the other city or, or the Mishnayas? But even the four have trouble with why? Have no money. Let me let me solve that problem for you. Takes them up to God. So that's 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 one Gemara. And before I stop and take comments and questions, I did want to mention one other thing about Elio Hanavi, which is tangential to the Sugya. In the story here in the Bab so Rabbi says to Elio, you're a Kohen, why are you in the cemetery? So we all gives them a terrace because he, don't, don't you know that it's a non-Jewish cemetery, it's not Metame, fine. That is actually problematic from several perspectives because there seem to be other sources that say differently. What's interesting is that in this context, Postvote and others cite other sources within the rabbinic corpus, which suggests that Elio is not a Kohen. And in fact, there are two other uh, traditions about Eliyahu. The only thing we know about Eliyahu is Mitosha be, be, Gilad from the other side of the Jordan, Ibrahayarde. So according to one tradition, Eliyahu is from the tribe of God. That's one tradition. He descends, he descends from Leah's side of the family, and that is Leah's side of the family. God is the uh, son of Leah's uh, Shifra, uh, Zilpa. That's and then according and then there's another tradition. Bnei Hanavi is from Bnei Rachel. He says there's a story that it also was close to this uh, that he said to them, uh, are, he said, "Are you a Kohen?" And uh, Elio responds in this other tradition, "No, no, I'm not a Kohen. I come from, I come from Rachel." So there are three actually three traditions about Elio. So I just wanted to say something about, about each tradition, what I think they're picking up on. The most obvious one is he's a Kohen, because this appears in many places, that Pinchas is, is, uh, is, is Eliyahu. Whether Chazal meant it literally is Eliyahu or figuratively, because they live hundreds of years apart, who knows? But the idea of Pinchas being Eliyahu is because Eliyahu says about himself when he runs away, what are you doing here, Eliyahu? And Eliyahu says, 
Kanoki Neti, I am zealous for God. Israel has abandoned you. They may they worship idols, they worship Babadazara. So, and Pinchas, right? The Kanoat Kinati, Pinchas is, is, is the great Kanoi, the great zealot. So this tradition connects Eliel to Pinchas, his forebear. And, and Pinchas, of course, is Aaron's grandson. He's a Kohen, it's a high priest, in fact. So we understand why in Chazal, we often come across the idea that Pinchas is Eliyahu. So that's clear. But there are two other traditions about, about Eliyahu. One is strikingly, I am, from, I am from, from Rachel, he says. I descend from Rachel. And in one, one tradition, that's what he says. No, I'm So I was thinking actually, what is that about? Because we always want to try to figure out when you have these midrashic statements, where are they coming from? Where, how are they reading the text or reinterpreting or purposely misinterpreting? It doesn't matter, but there's something in the text that they're seeing and they want us to, to understand this. So I had a thought about, uh, about Rachel, why he says he's from Rachel. And that is that one of the things that marks Eliyahu in the biblical text and in the, and, in, in, in the, in the Talmud Bavli is that Eliyahu Hanavi is somebody who always is a period. He shows up in all kinds of places. He's completely unpredictable. You never know when Elio is going to come. He suddenly appears. Usually it's a surprise. And I'm reminded of actually the story in the book of Malachim that way back when, when we looked at Elio in the Bible, the story is, if you recall that King Ahab, Elio has declared that there's going to be no rain. So he's, by doing so, he has made himself an enemy of the king. And uh, so, and then God says to Elio, there's going to be rain. Go tell Ahab there's going to be rain. Meanwhile, they're searching for Elio. Actually, they're searching for water. I take that back. Ahab is searching, and his servant is searching. The servant's name is Ovadia. Ovadia is searching for, 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 for water. There's no water. And Ahab is searching for water. And suddenly, Elio. And, and Ovadia meet. And Ovadia, we are told, was a person who he works for Acha. But um, so Elio says to him, I'm Elio. I said, Are you Elio? Yes. Go and tell your master Elio wants to talk to him. So Ovadia says to Elio, Listen, do you want to get me killed? Because I know you. Because people say they spotted you in one place and they go there and you've disappeared. So if I go to him and say, I've seen you, and then he goes and can't find you, I'll become suspicious in his eyes or whatever, and you'll get me killed. And don't you know what a good person I am? Because when Izebel, Ahab's wife, determined to kill all the prophets, I hid, I, I hid 100 prophets, 50 in one cave and 50 in, in, in another cave. And now you want me to go to... Uh, now you want me to go to Achav? So Elio says to him, don't worry about it. I, I promise you, if you go to Achav, I'll show up. That's the story. And um, that's the great story of Elio at Harakarmel. Achav goes to Harakarmel, etc. That's where Elio has the great test. So what's interesting is that, first of all, what we talked about way back when was that Elio has little use for, 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 uh, for, for Ovadia. Even though the text tells us Ovadia was a very good person, oh, 
you're a God-fearing person. But if Eliyahu, that's irrelevant because he works for Rachel. Eliyahu doesn't believe in working for, for the government, for the wicked government. He can do a lot of good. He's able to save 100 prophets. That's not Eliyahu's path. That's not his way. He's a complete outsider. He's a loner. He doesn't believe in that. But in the story, you see something about Eliyahu, which is he, he, he's constantly appearing and then he's disappearing. So I was thinking that actually the idea of when he says, no, I'm, I'm from Rachel. And I was thinking that actually, when you think about Rachel, unlike all the other patriarchs and matriarchs who are, who are buried in, in Maratha Machpelah, when it comes to Rachel, the Torah says she dies by Derech. And not only does she die by Derech, but in three different places in the Bible, it describes different places to Rachel's death. It says one thing in the Torah, it says something else in the book of Shmuel, it says something else in the book of Yirmiyahu. So where is she? Is she in Ramah? Is she in, uh, I forget the name of the place in, with a shin in, 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 uh, in, in Shmuel? Is she in Ephrat or Derech Beit Lechem? It's unclear where she is. Yet, it's not someone who has a particular place. That's why it's Rachel who, 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 who cries for her children who are missing. But she herself knows what it means not to have a place. So the, what this tradition is picking up on is the man who has no place. He's nowhere. He's, he has, is he in heaven? No, not in heaven. Is he on earth? He's not on earth. Is he in any particular place on earth? No, he constantly appears and reappears and disappears. In the Talmud, it's the same thing. Even in the stories, he learns with X and he often he checks out. Why do you leave? And you have to pray till he comes back. So the LEO is someone the person who has no place, that's what they're picking up, I think, in assigning him to Rachel. So the first one is the Zealot, and the second is the one who has no place. What about the third one, though? What about he's from Shevet God? What is that about? He's from Shevet God of all, of, all, of, of all tribes. Very strange. I had a thought about that. I don't know if it's right or not. You never know for sure, but I want to mention it anyway. I, I like it. And that is, at the end of the Torah, we know very little about God. We know one thing about God. Only one story in the Bible about God, which is that God, together with Ruvain, are the two tribes that don't cross the Jordan. Right? They're on the other side. That's, that's where Eliel comes from, Toshev Gilad, the other side of the Jordan. Moshe, when he blesses the tribes, he, Ruvain and God are on the other side, but he gives them two different blessings. With Ruvain, Moshe says, Ruven should live and not die. They, they should be well. You know, it's not much of a blessing. What about Ruven? They should live and be well. But when it comes to God, Moshe has a very nice blessing for God. Baruch Marchiv God. So blessed is, is God who enlarges God, who gives God, God more space. Why is God so worthy? They saw the first part of the land could be taken. Kisham chelkat michokek safun. What a very difficult phrase. Kisham, zota bracha. Kisham chelkat michokek safun. For there, the portion of the michokek was hidden. What in the world does that mean? So I personally, many times, have made the following suggestion, which I think is the pshat, actually, that the michokek is actually the, the king or, or the leader. And God took the possession on the other side of the Jordan because God realized 
that the, 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 the uh, power of the king may be limited to this side of the Jordan. When it comes to the other side of the Jordan, the king has less power. It's far away. You have to cross a, a, a river to get there. But God decided, in order to defend Israel, to set up his outpost on the very edges, on the far, far, re, on the far edges of the land of Israel. It reminds me of the early kibbutzim, actually, that was set up on the, on the borders, actually. And they served as a buffer between uh, potentially invading forces and the Jews living in the land of, uh, land of Israel. That's what I think the simple reading is. But there's a medrash. For there, the portion of the mechokek, of the one who called the lawgiver, is actually safun. It's hidden or buried. And the medrash connects it to none other than, uh, than, than Moshe. God took their portion there, but God realized that Moshe is buried there. And this, <laughs> the idea of Eliyahu being from Shevet God, speaks precisely to what we have spoken about, namely that Eliyahu is represented, at least in the Talmud, as a continue, he's represented in the book of Malachim also as a, as, as a Moshe type figure. But in the Talmud, He's a Moshe-type figure in the sense he continues to teach Torah. He continues to uh, be Doresh. He assists the rabbis. And more than that, for the Talmud, he's something else, which also, and this appears in the very last Mishnah in Tractate Eliot, we referenced it last week, he's the one who's going to resolve disputes. He resolves questions that are unclear. That's what the last Mishnah says. He comes to resolve disputes, to bring peace to the world. And they cite the last, well, the last verses in the prophetic writings. By the way, I just want to say one last point about that, and then I'll take comments and questions, then we'll conclude with the one other Gemara. And that is, when the Talmud speaks about Eliyo making peace, I'll just tell you my take on it. Some people think he's converted from the zealot into a peacemaker. That's how it's often understood, that the rabbis reconstructed him in such a way, he's this sweet old guy who does help, uh, you know, helps poor people, poor scholars, etc. And he's a, like an Aaron type figure who tries to make peace. I think that's a misunderstanding of what the, of what the Gemara says. I don't think Gemara had that in mind at all. It can be read that way, but I don't think that's what the Gemara says. There are different ways to make peace. Aaron had one way to make peace. Aaron is a Oev Shalom and a Rodev Shalom. Two people have a quarrel. And Aaron, the way the Talmud presents it, at least in one place, Aaron would go to one fellow and say, you know, the other wants to make peace with you. And he goes to the other fellow, you know, they really want to make peace. And they find a way to get together. What Aaron represents, I would say, is two people compromising, they get together, the idea of a pshara. Because, you know, when two people are arguing, usually each side has some truth. And the middle ground is the way for the two sides to reach some kind of agreement, some kind of accord. I don't believe that's what the Talmud has in terms of Eliyahu. So there's nothing in the stories about Eliyahu that would suggest anything remotely connected to that. Not at all. He's the same extremist he is uh, in, in, in the... In the, uh, in the Parts of the parts of the of the story in Sefer Murachim. There, of course, he undergoes a shift, but I don't think it's about that kind of shalom. I think it's a different kind of shalom. 
if we disagree about something, okay? You say black and I say white, okay? So one way to, one way to solve that is to say, you know something, David, it's not actually black and Chaim is not white. You know what it is? It's, it's actually gray. You're both right. It's not, it's not black, but it's not white either. You're both right. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. I don't think Elio is a guy who's looking for the middle. There's nothing in the biblical text that suggests it. He says exactly the opposite. In Mount Carmel, what does he say to the people? You can't stand in two places. You either serve God or you serve Baal. There's no middle ground for him. It's one or the other. But the point is, we can, we can make Shalom in a different way. Chaim says black and I say white. And then Eliyavi comes, you know something, David? He's right. It's black. That's Shalom. Oh, oh really? I didn't realize that. Okay. So we, we, we all agree now. We don't agree by a compromise. We agree by this fellow saying, let me tell you, let me tell you the truth, because I, I, I know the truth, the way it really is, right? And if we come to all understand the way it really is, there'll be perfect peace, because we now understand what actually it is. And I think that is actually the one way to resolve a dispute. The way to resolve a dispute is to study something. Let's look at the facts, you know? Not what we want to be. Let's see what the facts suggest. And to the extent we can, we can never really know 100% to get 100% accuracy in this world. But Hanavi can. So when he comes, he's going to bring people together. The first part of the mission of there says people that were kicked out of the, of the priesthood because their families were deemed to be problematic. He's going to see if that's the case. If it's not the case, he's going to restore them because they were thrown out incorrectly. And the, and the reverse is also true. If someone deemed to be, according to one view, okay, he can, says they're not okay. The other guy says, no, he doesn't do that. He only brings the, the, the ones far away. He brings them closer. But my point is, I don't think that the Shalom of Eliyahu, as reflected in the Bavli, is a compromiser. I don't think he's a compromiser in the Bavli. Nothing I've seen suggests it. And he's certainly not a compromiser when it comes to the biblical text either. Now, let me stop here for a minute and take comments or questions. Then I wanted to conclude with one very famous story about Elio, which is found right at the beginning in Tractate Brachot. All right. There's a question that came up in chat Go from uh, Ruth says, so interesting that the quote, smell of paradise clings to the coat as the Midrash suggests in the deception story where Yitzchak smells the fragrance of Gan Eden in the clothing of Esau that Yaakov is wearing. It's a good point. That actually is a connection over there. Yeah, that is very true. I don't know what to make of that, but it is the case, right? I mean, I think in this case, in the story, it's that it's like they have the Kabbalistic expression, the uh, Rishima. Rishima means the, you know, the scent. There's, there's, there's a bit of it here. There's, there's, a, there's a sign of it here. There's a piece of it here. That you walk in this world, and with, even within our world, we can see aspects of, 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 of this other perfect world within our world, you know, but we live in an imperfect world, obviously, but what they call Rishuma, Rishima, that, that's, that's what it comes down to. And Yitzchok is able to connect to that, perhaps. It's like being a kind of otherworldly of, of all the patriarchs. He's the most otherworldly, the sacrifice. Was any character in the Torah who, apart from Moshe, maybe bridges the worlds, certainly in the book of Breshit, would be Yitzchok. He's a person, but also he was a carbon. And there's something very sacred about Yitzchak. He never leaves the land. 
He is a very honest person. He has very deep connections to the land and to the people around him as well. So maybe there's something more to be said about that, but thank you for that observation. What else? Uh, that's what's come up in chat so far, but I could, okay. uh, anybody else? Yeah, if I could, uh, yeah. uh, I'm intrigued by Elijah being in the Gentile cemetery. And it, in many ways, it's a metaphor for not in this world and not in another world, is somewhere in between. But I'm also struck by, uh, and, and then from there, he gives all sorts of divrei Torah. From, he, he's neither here nor there. He's always in transit and in unexpected places. Unexpected, exactly. As I say, unexpected but, places. And, and, and it's not where we usually find... Uh, you know, a person who's giving a divrei Torah or Piskei right. you know, but, but it's unusual. But but I, I'm, I'm struck by another thing, and that is the end of Malachi, and that is Pen Avovi Kesi Ha'aretz Cherem. I'm so struck by that. He's trying on some level to bring us back from a sense of destruction um, and to find a some way of reconciling a deeper truth. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's an allusion to uh, uh, because he's trying to prevent that. Um, let, me, let, me, let me just speak to that very briefly. That's a very important point. And I would say the following point, that if you look at the, at the Tanakh, you see what, when Elio actually appears in the Bible. There's no introduction to him. He just appears out of nowhere. But the previous verses, the previous verses, that's Elio appears in Malachim Al chapter 17. If you look at the end of chapter 16, it's very striking. Chapter 16 gives us the sort of biography of Acha, terrible king. In his day, says the text, the city of Jericho was, was rebuilt. And the one who rebuilds the city of Jericho, his two sons died. As Yoshua, had said in the book of Yoshua that whoever rebuilds the city will, will, will suffer the loss of, of two children. And the point is that what is it? That's the verse that actually introduces Elio Hanavi. So, what does it mean to rebuild Jericho? Jericho was the beginning of the conquest of the land. If you're rebuilding Jericho, what you're doing in effect is undoing the conquest. If you undo the conquest of the land, where are you? You're back in the desert. So, Elio's role and Elisha's role is to keep Israel inside the land, because at that point in time, everything is unraveled. Not just that Achav is a sinner and a, and a wicked king and Jezebel is his wife, but, but you've just undone the conquest. So the, the role of Elio in the biblical text is precisely as you suggest, which is to, to keep us in the land, to, 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 to stop the, the, the exile from happening. And the book of Kings is the book of exile. So at the end of the book, we're in exile. But what the prophets are able to do, Elio and Elisha, is as long as they're around, they're able to allow us to maintain the presence in the land and stand before God, as it were. The moment they, Elio and Elisha, his pupil die, then basically a few chapters later, we're actually out. There's a lot more to be said about that, but that, that's a very core idea, I think, in Sefer, in Sefer, in Sefer Malachim. I did want it's to just conclude with one more. Debbie, you want to say something? Yeah, it just seems to me that he he's like always on the cusp of doom and standing there being hachaim v'hamavet. 
he just seems to be like this harbinger of fending off doom or declaring doom. And, and he's such an extreme character that it, it just strikes me as, um, I, I liked your idea of that he decides whether it's black or white. He would never be the gray character in the middle. Um, well, no, that's not him. It's certainly not him in the Tanakh. And I don't think it's him in the Bavli either. It's never right. the sense I have. He's an extremist always, actually. Right. I mean, he's an right. extremist with a bit of a temper, I would say. But the fact of the matter is, he sees, but I do see his, he sees his, and he, and he does change to some extent in the biblical narrative. He does pray for the woman he stays with, etc. But the fact of the matter is that, um, yeah, I think that was his role. And, you know, we, we're all put in certain situations and we deal with the situation. His job and then is they to maintain us in the land. To, That's his job. And then they make him come to the brisses. Right. That's because that's probably something else. That's because he had questioned Israel's adherence to the covenant. Existence, and right. Then and then continued the, existence. Right. The person who was an extremist, and this is another, we don't have time for this now. I simply mentioned it. People who think, people who are very extreme sometimes think that they have the truth and only they have the truth. There is no other truth. And Elio says it's explicit. He runs up to die. He says, listen, he says, there's no one left but I'm me. I'm the only one left. I'm the right. only one left is what he says. It's only me. And, 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 I, and I can't. So I might, you might as well take my life because there's no point. And what God says to him essentially is, first of all, that's not the way to behave. Takes him to our Moshe didn't behave that way with the golden calf. <laughs> Secondly, you're not the only one. There are other 7,000 others. And not only that, your job is to train the next one. So you go back and you find Alicia and you train Alicia, et cetera. Now, there's a lot more to that. And again, the time doesn't allow us to go into it, but it's actually a fascinating story because even with Alicia, Elio has doubts about Alicia too. He's not sure Alicia can actually succeed him as he's being taken up to heaven. He says, what do you, what do you want? And the answer is, I want to be your main disciple. And Elio says, I'm not sure you can be. The rest of he says, you know, if, if you see me ascending, then yes, if not, not. He expresses doubts as he's leaving this world. He expresses doubts about his one and only disciple who left his family, who follows him every place he goes, who won't abandon him, both decide. but he has his doubts. And that's part of the personality of the true extremist. The personality is often, I have the truth and no one else can really, can really fully have the truth. So that is the AWO of the, of the of the story of Sefer Mulachim. Uh, in the Bible, you have some of that sense as well, but not to the same extent. He does engage with people much more, but when and where, you never know. Let me let me say, let me just quote one more Gemara here, and before we stop, it's a big topic. We just scratched the surface of it, but it's um, I find that we all such a fascinating character. I'll just mention the one Gemara. It's a Gemara in Brachot. So we have five minutes. So I'll be just <laughs> telling the Gemara. You see, stop. It's a very famous Gemara. And it's a story like this. Tanya, it's exactly where it is. You got to just... Tanya on Rabbi said the following. One day I was walking amongst the ruins of Jerusalem. I came into a ruin and I went inside there to pray. Eliyo may he be remembered for good, was guarding the door. He, wait till I, he waited till I finished davening. After I finished, 
he said to me, Shalom Alecha, welcome, Rabbi. Rebbe says to me, how are you? Shalom Alecha, calls him Rebbe, Rebbe Yossi. My mother is Shalom Alecha, Rabbi Umori. Rebbe, my, my Rebbe and, and my teacher, Shalom to you. My son, he said, why did you enter the ruin? I said to pray. He said to me, you should have prayed on the road. I said to him, I was afraid. Maybe someone would stop me. Someone would talk to me. He said to me, you should have prayed a short prayer because the mission has other uh, certain circumstances to pray a shorter prayer. If we scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. Yes, right there. He taught me three things, says Rabbi Yossi. He taught me you shouldn't walk into a ruin. Maybe it's dangerous. And he taught me you can pray when you're walking on the road. And he taught me that when you pray on the road, you pray a short prayer. This is the Yehoyah that we've encountered. He's one of the, one of the learners. He's teaching me three things. He says, Rabbi Yomori. Now scroll down some more. So Elio said to my son, what did you hear when you went inside the ruin? What did you hear? And I said to him, I heard a, a, a divine voice, which was wailing like a dove and saying, woe to, the, woe to me that I destroyed my house. I burnt my temple and I exiled my children amongst the nations of the world. And Elio said to me, I swear, not only once do you, does, does the divine voice say this, but every day, three times a day. Not only that, but whenever Israel walks into Bate Knesset or Bate Medrash and they say, Yeheshmei Rabbah, God shakes God's head and says, how, how, how fortunate for the king that they praise the king in his house. Woe to the father who exiled his children. Woe to the children were exiled from their father. It's a very, very famous story, very beautiful story. And they, we could spend a lot of time on the story as many interesting pieces to it. But I want to say one thing about the story. And that is, what is Eliyahu doing over here? So Eliyahu on one hand, he's guarding the house, right? He's standing by the gate. He doesn't want people to walk in. Rebiosi walks in. And when he walks out, he says, what are you doing there? I wanted to pray. Prayer on the road. Once again, he's is always on the road, right? He's, he's, he's always on the road, Ariel, right? You pray on the road. I mean, you need a place to pray. pray. I was afraid they'd interrupt me. So pray, have a short prayer. It's better to have a short prayer, right? But, so I learned three things. Then he said, by the way, what did you hear inside this, this, this ruin? So he hears a divine voice saying, woe to me who destroyed my house and exiled my children, etc." So Elio says, you know something? Not just, not, not just one time, but every day. And not just every day once, but three times a day. Of course, three times a day is we, we pray three times a day, right? There's a kind of divine prayer over here. But my point is that Elio is, once again, he stands between where God is present and with the human. He's standing on that liminal space. But I think in the story, I think what he's saying, what does he mean, what did you hear? Why does he ask him, what did you hear? And I think the point of it is, and once he tells him what he heard, then Elio is very effusive. He says, not only that, let me tell you something else. And not only about the Khorva, 
but even about the Beit Midrash and the, and the Beit Knesset, etc. And I think what Elio is doing over here is when Rabbi Yossi walks out, he wants to know, what did you hear? Did you actually hear anything? And when he understands that he heard something, that he's, so he's in a certain spiritual place where he can actually hear the God cry, which is what the story is about. Then he, then he connects to this, to this, to this Rabbi Yossi, because of my son. Let me tell you more, because you're capable of hearing. And I think that's very interesting, because as I mentioned before, this is somebody, I wouldn't say he has great faith <laughs> in, in people in general. He's not someone who sees the world you know, with tinted glasses. But when there are people <clears throat> who actually have the ability to connect to, 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 connect to the divine, to hear God's voice, to, to see the world as a, as a place in which God is mourning God's world, then the, those are the people that Elio can, can, can in fact connect to. And he connects not only teaching him three laws, but he tells them more about the way God operates in the world. And what he says, he ends by saying, you know, there is no temple, but there are other ways to connect. There are other sacred spaces. There's the Beit Midrash, there's the Beit Knesset, etc. And woe that we are, from one standpoint, distant from God. On the other hand, there are ways still to, to make these, these, these connections, which strikes me as very Eliyahu, because... He's the ultimate exile. He comes and he goes constantly. On the other hand, he brings down heaven to earth. You know, that's the first story. Brings down the scented garments to earth. Through Eliyo, we can appreciate what the Kabbalists picked up with Gilu Eliyo. There are still ways in this world of darkness to, to see some light. And I think that's what, in this very beautiful story, that's what Eliyo represents. So I just wanted to mention this story and conclude with this story. There's a lot more about Elio to be spoken of in the Talmud, and of course, beyond the Talmud in the Midrash, etc. But to get some sense of who Elio is in the Talmud, and I, just to conclude by saying, I think that the Talmud does reconstruct him in a certain sense. What's even more interesting is the degree to which this, the qualities and character of Elio are still present in the Talmud too. They take a different form, but the person doesn't change that much. It's the same kind of person, same kind of mentality. Uh, okay, so thank you very much. Is, uh, is it possible to say yes. that this is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, an interpretation of the Heshiv Levavos Albanim Lev? Um, you know, uh, he, he's bringing God to the children and bringing the children to God. Right. That, that's the meaning of the Heshiv Levavos Albanim Levbanim Alavos. Yeah, could be. Could be so. So he's the, sure, I think that's so we. I mean, that certainly is true of Elio in the story, Mount Carmel. Elio is trying to bring the people back to God. He makes every attempt to do that. So that I think that, that is the way he sees his mission. That's certainly the case. Uh, again, there's a lot more to say about this, but I'll have to stop at this point. Uh, so thank you very much. I appreciate, I, you know, like to be together and uh, there should be many other opportunities, hopefully, to study together. Thank you. Thank you. Chag Thank you everyone for joining. Thank you for everyone who, who's joined for this class or for this whole series. Uh, we are coming into the end of winter's month, but we will return in January. But if, but if you want to learn more, coming up the last week in December, starting December 26th, is our winter's month. We will have Gemara Shir in the morning and afternoon classes on the 26th, the 27th, and the 28th. And if you want to to find out more, you can check out our website at winter.drisha.org 
which I am also posting the link to in chat. But I did want to say something about that. The topic is actually intention, uh, we call Kavana, and it should be a very, there's two pieces to it. One is the role that intention plays in performance of mitzvot, et cetera. And the other has to do with intention and prayer. And there are all different pieces to that that are very interesting in terms of how does one put oneself in a place and one can be more uh, attentive to prayer. Uh, one of the, some of the techniques is a very interesting uh, series of people that will be talking about techniques in prayer. I think it's something that should be quite fascinating. So that's again, the last week of December. Okay, then thank you all. Hope and to we see should you thank Kayla soon. for her great work also. Thank you. Take care, everyone.